The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. Welcome to Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. We're, uh, I'm a national democratic strategist, a columnist for The Hill in Washington, D.C., and a political analyst for news radio stations KNX in Los Angeles and WGN in Chicago. You can read my columns in the Hill at muckrack, that's M-U-C-K-R-A-C-K dot com front slash Brad Bannon. My Twitter handle is Brad Bannon. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls for uh, progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. BannonCR.com is the sponsor of today's show. Mondays on Deadline DC, I talk to the progressive people and players uh, behind the politics and policy that drive our great nation forward. This week on Deadline DC, we'll greet the press and preview the news of the week. In the first half hour, my guest is Sarah Jones, the editor-in-chief of Politicus USA, who's joining us today to talk about the big governor's race in Virginia on Tuesday and the uh, Supreme Court hearing on the draconian Texas abortion law, which is happening as we speak. Then in the second half hour, our guest will be Sean Zella, an editor at Congressional Quarterly and Roll Call, who who joins us to discuss the big battle over the big and bold Biden Build Back Better bill. Our guest in the first half, first of all, we're going to uh, listen to some video uh, from Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic candidate for governor of Virginia, uh, talking about the problems that Glenn Youngkin would cause as governor uh, if uh, if he wins tomorrow's elections. He doesn't believe the nurse working in a cancer ward should be required to be vaccinated. I happen to believe it. He doesn't believe, he says, day one, all masks come off and all vaccine requirements of teachers goes away. That will not happen with Governor Terry McAuliffe. Let me tell you this. We got to protect our students. Today, 1,142 of our children have been hospitalized with COVID. We just lost two 11-year-olds. Do you really want parents here sending your child to first grade where the teacher's not vaccinated? They're not wearing masks? No. Well, that's what you get with Glenn Trumpkin. That's what you're going to get. That was Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic candidate running for governor of Virginia. The big election in Virginia is tomorrow. Uh, our guest to talk about Virginia and also the Supreme Court hearing on the draconian uh, Texas abortion law is Sarah Jones. She is the editor chief of Politicus USA. Uh, she is the star of stage, screen and social media. The website for uh, Politicus USA is P-O-L-I-T-I-C-U-S-U-S-A.com. And their Twitter handle is Politicus USA. 
uh, Sarah's Twitter handle is uh, Politicus Sarah. Sarah, welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm glad you couldn't join us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. It's a busy week. Busy uh, week. You heard the clip from Terry McAuliffe warning about the dangers that the Republican candidate for governor, Glenn Youngkin, poses to school students. Uh, I was surprised last week, uh, a wa- poll done by the Washington Post on the governor's race showed that Youngkin was leading McAuliffe, I believe, by 15 points among voters who were parents of school-aged children. What's going on there? Well, that's a good question, and I'm glad to see that they've, uh, you know, kind of pivoted to the tying him to Trump and to the coronavirus, because that one of the polls, I think it's the one you're referencing, showed that uh, people were more focused on the school issue, and that's how uh, Youngkin, who is very much like Donald Trump, has pulled ahead. Um, 538 has him at 0.9 lead, um, but when you start looking at registered voters instead of likely voters. Um, you still see McAuliffe with four points ahead. So it's all about turnout for Democrats. But what has happened is really important because it shines a light on what uh, Republicans will be doing in the midterms that has been successful so far in Virginia that we're seeing. And that is uh, that they have tied uh, their they have run this whole thing about critical race theory, which I'm sure everybody has heard. Um, they're doing a lot of fear mongering about that in the school system in Virginia. And they have um, a former one is a former uh, Trump administration official. And the other is uh, the mother of uh, a son who was an intern at the Trump White House. So they're kind of like both bringing up these issues. One is in a doing an ad. Um, not just about critical race theory, but how you really can't trust Democrats to be running education because Democrats are trying to implement some trans uh, gender rights and changing some of the access issues in schools. And Republicans are saying that this is a threat to little children and suddenly they care about sexual assault. I know that might be a surprise to you. It is, no one, yeah. it is a surprise to me as well. No one has suggested that uh, trans people are guilty of sexual assault, but Republicans, and I just want to make that very clear because there's never been a, a line, you know, that, that connection has never been made except over the last year on Fox News. They've been hammering that never, even though it's, I don't know of any instances of that. But what happened in Virginia, the um, uh, one of the, gentleman who was arrested at one of the school board meetings you know school boards have been out of control due to all this right-wing push um against the against coronavirus uh mitigation and and now critical race theory so they become violent and he got arrested well now then he said his daughter had been sexually assaulted in a bathroom at school by a boy wearing a skirt and that boy was indeed found guilty of sexual assault, but no one has ever, uh, we don't know his gender identity and the trans access um, issue had not even been implemented in schools yet. So it's really quite irrelevant to the point that Republicans are trying to make. And yet it ties in very neatly for someone who was already arrested, um, you know, creating trouble as a right-wing activist at these school board meetings, um, it fits in very neatly with the narrative that Fox News has been selling um, over this past year. So that's kind of what's happening. Okay, while we're on the subject, uh, Juan Williams, uh, who is a 
or was a commentator on Fox News Channel, uh, wrote a column in The Hill today saying that the call for parents' rights in Virginia uh, was essentially a racist dog whistle. What do you think of that? Oh, I think it is because, um, you know, they Republicans have been I, let's let's put context on this. This is not new and it's not new to Trump. Republicans have been using Southern strategy to win elections for a very long time. But the way they get away with that is they find in each election a new issue that doesn't look like it's racist. So it's states rights. And now here we are at parents rights. That's what this they've framed this whole thing about. One of their issues, for example, is they're very upset that um, kids in an advanced placement class are to read Toni Morrison's Beloved, which is a wonderful novel about the horrific repercussions of slavery. Uh, She's a Nobel Peace winner, so, you know, not exactly any kind of fringe. This is really good writing. I wouldn't want my kid to read this, but that's one of the ads they took out purposes of clarity that my daughter, who's a high school English teacher, uh, loves Beloved and uh, uses it frequently in her classes. It's a great, It's. I mean, she's an, an, an amazing author. Everyone should read her. Um, you want your kids to, I mean, why do we not want our kids to know history? Uh, Republicans are saying that they don't want their kids to feel guilty. Well, you know, I think that whole argument is, is specious on its face, but, you know, let's I'll leave that aside just to get back to one of the things they, they're doing is running an ad in Virginia um, about, you know, Terry McAuliffe won't let parents have a say. And they're not saying what their issue is, but it's this book. And that's why it's racist. But of course, they're not going to come out and admit what book it is. Otherwise, it looks very much like it's racist. And here we have, you know, uh, Youngkin, who says he would support Trump in the next election, trying to distance himself from Trump because Virginia is not keen on Trump and Biden won Virginia by almost a nearly 10 percentage points. points. So, um, you know, obviously Youngkin's trying to distance himself, but he looks to be very much a Trump candidate. I don't know anyone. I think we could put on a, a handful of Republicans who are not uh, showing themselves to be willing to become Trump candidates at some point. Yep, they've all drunk the Kool-Aid. Sarah, we're going to go to a break now. When we come back, we will have more with Sarah Jones, editor-in-chief of Politicus USA, uh, to talk more about the Virginia governor's race and also the uh, Supreme Court uh, case uh, on the draconian Texas abortion law. We'll be back right after these messages with more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Our guest in this segment is Sarah Jones, who is the editor-in-chief of Politicus USA. Uh, we've been talking about the Virginia governor's race. Uh, we're going to talk about the uh, we're going to talk about uh, abortion now. Uh, by the way, for our radio listeners, if you'd like to see us um, as well as hear us, you can watch us on Twitter at uh, www.twitter.com front slash Brad Bannon. You can watch us on Facebook at tinyurl.com front slash BB Facebook Live and on YouTube at tinyurl.com front slash Brad on YouTube. 
Sarah, today the Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court, is hearing oral arguments on the Texas abortion law. Uh, please tell us a little bit about uh, why the Texas abortion law has engendered such controversy. Well, the, the law actually stands, uh, as it was written, as a threat to constitutional rights for everyone. And I think that's the part that's probably surprising conservatives a little bit as they've realized the precedent that this law sets. So the court's going to hear arguments from the DOJ and from abortion providers, two separate petitions. They're not hearing um, about the constitutionality of abortion, although they could very well, you know, decide to to make it more broad if they wish. But right now it's about the the, uh, the way the law is enforced. And so the issue with that is that the law is enforced, um, the enforcement mechanism basically threatens broader constitutional issues um, because the, the law basically says that the federal courts then cannot review the state uh, law they can't determine whether or not it's constitutional. So it's allowed to violate constitutional rights. Um, and and obviously the DOJ has an issue with that. And then providers as well want to know uh, why constitutional rights can't be reviewed by you know, federal courts. So that's basically what they're going to be looking at. But I think the issue that that law has um, already created an issue for women in Texas, not just women who want to get an abortion, but women who have medical emergencies with pregnancies. There's any topic pregnancy that can happen. And right now, providers are saying that not only has it had a chilling effect, that providers are afraid to uh, give the care that they know that their patient needs because they could be sued and then be, you know, financially devastated by that, the way the law is set up by that lawsuit. Um, and the fees, the, the legal fees and everything else that they would be responsible for. So not only that you have to have uh, doctors decide you need this procedure to save your life, then lawyers have to agree, and then you have to find somebody willing to provide it. And that's in the case of a medical emergency. So you can imagine that that's not going well. I mean, it's a terrible uh, predicament to yeah, now that. the Texas law virtually makes it impossible for any woman, uh, even uh, a woman who's in, uh, pregnant as a result of rape or incest, to have an abortion uh, after six weeks. Uh, also, the court's going to also hear oral arguments on December 1st about a Mississippi law uh, which bans abortion after 15 weeks. Now, it seems to me that you have now six conservative justices uh, on the Supreme Court. Uh, and do you think uh, they will end up using the Texas law um, or the Mississippi law uh, to overturn uh, the landmark uh, abortion rights decision in the case Roe v. Wade? Well, I think they want to. Uh, will they actually do that? I thought your column brought up that interesting point about how this is polling and going over with people, which I don't think they would want to do uh, politically speaking before a midterm that it looks like Democrats are set to kind of mess up anyway. Uh, but, you know, because that would be a, a quite an issue to go to the polls on. And it's not just women. It, it matters to men as well. Um, but uh, the other issue going on with the court that I think is is why the conservatives may back away they certainly don't want to uh they certainly don't want to see this texas law 
or they shouldn't want to see it go through unchallenged as it is because of the precedent that, you know, other states could go after the right to bear arms. They could go after free speech using the same way that this law was set up. And th so you already see uh, conservatives concerned about that precedent with good reason. Um, so I'm wondering if the justices are going to take that into account. We know that they're concerned about being seen as partisan hacks because uh, they are partisan hacks. Some, several of them are partisan hacks. Um, and so and it does look like they're not you know they let this this law stand when it was first challenged they were silent on it they did nothing for 24 hours and which is a long time when you think that you're the, the court that's supposed to you know make sure that constitutional rights are protected and you're just sitting silent when they're obviously being threatened um so i think the conservative gun group groups are worried about this Texas abortion law. So if the Supreme Court doesn't strike it down, they're afraid that liberals are going to use that same legislation to come after gun ownership. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I uh, hope you're right about that. But the way I look at it, there are now six conservative judges uh, on the Supreme Court. Uh, the Chief Justice, Justice Roberts, is a legal institutionalist, and I doubt whether he would vote to overturn Roe versus Wade, but there are still five other conservative judges uh, who may very well uh, overturn Roe versus Wade, uh, because this may be the only opportunity they have to do it. It's been the conservative cause celeb for ever since 1973, when Roe was decided. Uh, what would what would the political impact be if the Supreme Court did overturn uh, Roe versus Wade, either using the Texas law or the Mississippi law as an opportunity to do that? Well, I think that if they're going to do that, they would use the Mississippi law for the reason I just cited yep. earlier. And that's just, you know, being very cynical about it. But um I, I honestly I don't I don't think this is going to go well for them if they do this. Um it will hurt a lot of people and a lot of women will have their lives jeopardized by lack of medical care. So I don't want to just say the, the political ramifications without noting that it's very important that women's uh, lives are protected as well. It's not right to have them threatened. I do think that this is a big issue for Republicans. If they overturn Roe versus Wade, they're going to find out that all of those white women in the suburbs that they think are their voters don't support that. A lot of mothers don't support forcing people to have children. And they also want the right to, you know, do in vitro and all these other issues that come up from these laws. So I think it would be, um, politically speaking, a gift to Democrats, but to the country, quite devastating and to women, absolutely, you know, life threatening. Yeah. Uh, okay. I'm going to, put you on the spot here like Leslie does when I'm on her show uh, <laughs> who he thinks going to win in Virginia tomorrow oh god I don't do these things I don't do predictions because you know my emotional side of me is always thinking that Democrats are going to lose and very afraid of another Trump person coming in but um if I had to guess, if you're going to make me guess, which I really don't like doing, but if, if Democrats get turnout, I think that McAuliffe will pull this out. Okay. I think okay. he'll pull it uh, off. But We're going to leave it there, and I think you already predicted that the court is going not going to overturn Roe versus Wade, so we'll probably have an op another opportunity to talk about that. 
That's it for this segment of Deadline DC. We'll be back after these messages. I want to thank our guest, Sarah Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Politicus USA. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. This half hour of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon is brought to you by my company, Bannon Communications Research, which polls for uh, progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. Uh, we're first going to go to President Biden from Scotland discussing the need uh, for climate action, which is part of the Build Back Better bill. We meet with the eyes of history upon us and the profound questions before us. It's simple. Will we act? Will we do what is necessary? Will we seize the enormous opportunity before us? Or will we condemn future generations to suffer? This is the decade that will determine the answer, this decade. The science is clear. We only have a brief window left before us to raise our ambitions and to raise to meet the task that's rapidly narrowing. Keep the goal of limiting global warming to just 1.5 degrees Celsius within our reach if we come together. If we commit to doing our part of each of our nations with determination and with ambition, that's what COP26 is all about. Glasgow must be the kickoff of a decade, a decade of ambition and innovation to preserve our shared future. Climate change is already ravaging the world. We've heard from many speakers. It's not hypothetical. It's not a hypothetical threat. It's destroying people's lives and livelihoods and doing it every single day. It's costing our nations trillions of dollars. Record heat and drought, fueling more widespread and more intense wildfires in some places and crop failures in others. Record flooding and what used to be a once-in-a-century storms are now happening every few years. In the past few months, the United States has experienced all of this, and every region of the world can tell similar stories. And in an age where this pandemic is made so painfully clear that no nation can wall itself, wall itself off from borderless threats, we know that none of us can escape the worst that's yet to come if we fail to seize this moment. That is President Biden speaking from the Climate Change Conference in Glasgow, Scotland. The enactment, uh, the American Rescue Act is already law and eventually both infrastructure bills will pass Congress in some form. The enactment of all three bills in a divided and polarized political climate is a significant accomplishment for the president and will revitalize the economy, fight climate change, and make wealthy Americans and big corporations pay their fair share of taxes. In the face of an intense lobbying campaign by big business and having only a razor-thin majority in Congress, President Biden, Senators Bernie Sanders, and their aggressive progressive supporters are about to pull off an impressive triple play. Progressives won't get everything they want, but they will get the tools they need for America to deal with the existential threats to the economy and the planet. 
You can read the rest of this column and all my columns, The Hill, at muckrack.com front slash Brad Bannon. Our guest in this half hour is Sean Zella, an editor for Congressional Quarterly and Roll Call. Sean, welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Thanks for having me, Brad. It's good to be with you. I always like to remind people when you're on that you were the first ever guest on Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, and uh, hope you'll join us again sometime. Okay, let's start this. Okay, there are basically two big bills pending before con- uh, Congress on infrastructure. Uh, one is the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which I believe is about $1.2 trillion for, I'd say, basic infrastructure. Then we've got a package that right now is about, at about uh, $1.75 trillion over 10 years uh, that has money to uh, fight climate change, uh, uh, reinvigorate the economy. Uh, and both these bills are pending before Congress. Clarify for our audience where these bills are and how codependent they are on each other. Well, there's been some news today on this, but the setup uh, is that Democrats can pass um, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, the one that's just roads and bridges and traditional infrastructure. It's already passed the Senate and just needs a vote in the House. Democrats could pass that with only Democratic votes, although there is expected to be at least a few Republicans who will vote for it in the House. And this bill has been pending for a while. It passed the Senate some weeks ago. Uh, The other bill is the much broader piece of legislation. And it's going to be passed, or the plan is to pass it using the budget reconciliation process, which allows Democrats to pass bills that have to do with fiscal policy with only um, majority votes. So the Democrats are the majority party in the House and Senate. If they're all united, they can pass this other bill without Republican support. The problem has been that Democratic moderates, particularly Joe Manchin from West Virginia, the senator and his fellow senator, Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, have put up some roadblocks. Sinema doesn't like Uh, tax rate increases. Manchin is concerned that the bill could contribute to inflation and add to the national debt. And so they've been going back and forth with President Biden, with the House and with House progressives to try to reach an agreement on that second bill. And progressives to this point have said they won't vote on the strict infrastructure, hard infrastructure bill until Manchin and Sinema have signaled they've agreed to the larger climate and social welfare package. There may, however, have been a breakthrough today, at least on the hard infrastructure bill. And that was uh, Pramila Jayapal, the congresswoman from Seattle, the chairwoman of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, said she said on CNN that she would allow a vote on that hard infrastructure bill to go forward this week in the House. And then that bill should pass. But the other bill remains an open question. Manchin and Cinema have still not signed on. Okay. Uh, now, this is my understanding. It's got, it's got very tricky and complicated. Uh, on the uh, last week, I believe, uh, Senator Manchin 
said that he was uh, comfortable with the overall framework of the bill. Uh, today, he said he still had questions uh, about the impact of the bill on the economy uh, and on the budget deficit. So he seemed to back away a little bit. Uh, it should, I should also note that uh, Senator Sanders said he's uncomfortable with the framework uh, because it didn't uh, provide uh, a vehicle uh, for lower prescription drug prices. Uh, and, uh, well, first of all, do you think both bills are going to eventually pass? Um, I think the betting person is still expecting that they will. It's, it seems now that the hard infrastructure bill will pass this week. Uh, the larger bill, though, Manchin, who, as you say, has been has given positive signals, and then another day he'll give negative signals. And so it's really hard to know where he'll come down. The, the betting man says that probably at some point he'll, he wants to pass a bill and help his own party. But you also have other Democrats who've said that they need certain things in this bill. You have a number of Democrats who say it has to repeal the uh, limit on the SALT, the state and local tax deduction that was Republicans passed in 2017. You have other Democrats say that this has to do, uh, some Democrats saying you need to do something about immigration, and providing a path to citizenship for immigrants in the country here unauthorized. So all of this stuff is still in flux, and it seems like uh, there hasn't been an agreement yet inside the party, and they'll have to do it if they want to get it done. Now, uh, as you mentioned, uh, there may there may be a House vote on the basic infrastructure bill uh, before there is a House vote on the larger Build Back Better program. Now, if there is a vote on the basic infrastructure bill, and that probably would pass in the House, wouldn't that uh, give away all the uh leverage that progressives have to get the bigger pa bill passed in the Senate? That's been their thinking, is that they needed that leverage to put pressure on people like Manchin and Cinema to get on board. Um, Manchin, in his speech today, he, he addressed reporters today, he expressed skepticism about the larger bill, about its effect on the deficit, about its effect on inflation. He said he wanted to see how it would affect those things, which means basically he wants a score on the bill from the Congressional Budget Office, which is the nonpartisan arbiter of these things. But it's it's easy to perceive that um, coming, th them working that out in such a way, reaching agreement on the tax increases and what's in the bill in a way that satisfies him, that they could get it done. So, Sean, um, we're going to go to a break now, but we come back, uh, we will have more discussion of the Build Back Better bill with our guest, Sean Zeller, an editor at Congressional Quarterly and Roll Call. Welcome back to Deadline DC Brad Van. Our guest in this half hour is Sean Zeller, who's an editor, Congressional Quarterly uh, and Roll Call. Uh, Sean, President Biden is in Glasgow, Scotland, as we speak. We heard the clip from him at the top of the half hour uh, at the International Climate Change uh, Conference called COP26. Uh, uh, now, uh, climate change is a big part of the uh, uh, big and bold Build Back Better bill. Uh, 
some of the climate change provisions have been cut out of the bill at Senator Manchin's insistence, but there are still others that are prison, at least for now. Uh, is is climate how big a is of an issue is climate change to voters? Is it important at all right now? I mean, there you know the economy is. Uh, people are concerned about the economy. Uh, they're concerned about uh, the pandemic. Uh, does climate change figure into the calculus at all? It does. I, I think it's an issue that certainly fires up the Democratic base. Uh, the progressives out there would love to see something get done on climate. The, the spending that's still anticipated in the Build Back Better Act is about one third climate, over $500 million. So it's a significant amount of spending to combat climate change. And I think it would help reassure progressives that this administration is providing something that they care about. And that's important. I mean, get, winning elections is a lot about keeping your base motivated and keeping your base happy. I don't think it is as important to sort of the run of the mill voter out there the voter in the middle who is probably more concerned right now about the COVID pandemic and getting that passed behind us and you know, inflation, seeing the rising bills at the grocery store, at the gas pump. And so it's a mixed bag, but I think certainly some climate spending in that legislation. Uh, okay, uh, let, let's uh, try this. Uh, you said that the uh, passage of the bill uh, would engender some enthusiasm from progressives uh, in the Democratic Party. Uh, if this passes in sort of the form it seems to be in now, is that a victory for progressives? Remember, Bernie Sanders started out talking about a $6 trillion package. Uh, then Joe Biden uh, announced uh, his support for a three point, uh, you know, a package that was over three trillion dollars. If it passes, it will probably be about one point seven five trillion dollars. A lot of things got knocked out of the package. Uh, free community college, uh, some climate change provisions, which drove down the cost to its specific level. Uh, is this a, would this be a big victory for progressive Democrats like Bernie Sanders? It would be, but I think you make a good point. Disappointment, but. In reality, this is a lot of spending. One of the big, it would be one of the biggest spending bills ever in the history of the United States. And when you add to that the American Rescue Plan, which was passed earlier this year, and where you're seeing spending right now and improving um, infrastructure in cities and um, schools, uh, it's a sell, sales job. You know, Joe Biden will have to sell it, sell it as a big victory, despite not being quite as extensive as he had hoped. Yeah, he would. Uh, okay, uh, we're uh, okay. Uh, let's uh, let's uh, try this, uh, uh, Sean. Whoops, uh, I think we've. Uh, okay, okay. I'm here, Brad. I'm here, Brad. Okay, uh, Sean. Uh, what uh, can you give us a brief summary? And again, this is right now. What is what is in the big bill 
uh, if it passes in the form it does now that there you know i think you're right i think uh between the american rescue act uh and the bipartisan infrastructure program and build back better if it passes we're going to have some very you know, very big transformation in the role of government in american society uh can you describe what's going to be in the build back better bill that will uh wreak significant changes on american politics and policy well in addition to the climate uh provisions which we talked about the bill would still uh, move toward universal preschool and childcare for Americans, which would be a major change. Right now, in many places in the country, there's no free school until you reach kindergarten. And so that's typically at age five. So people are having to pay out of pocket for their young kids. Um, and it's a huge cost, for, especially for young families, which haven't, you know, many, most of them have not reached their full earning potential. And so that would be a major democratic victory to get that done. I think the bill would also provide some additional funding for elder care, you know, people who are, have, have elderly parents and are having to deal with um, end of life care for them, understand how big an issue that is and how it could make a real difference for people in those situations. So I think those two things are certainly provisions Democrats could sell. You know, whether they're able to go beyond that and try to attack high drug prices or provide a path to citizenship for immigrants, you know, those would certainly be additional things that they would like to see, but are more controversial. Okay. Uh, as, uh, once we resolve the legislative battle over uh, the infrastructure programs, is anything else likely to happen in Congress of a great significance between now and the midterm elections next year? I would say at this point, no. I mean, I think this is it. Um, typically, when you get into an election year, you're, it's much harder to, to move forward with far-reaching legislation. Not impossible, but much harder. People are much more wary about doing something big uh, when they're going to be to agree to more lighting that's bipartisan, but then there's also okay. authorizing okay. legislation, things of that nature. There are a lot of outstanding issues out there. Uh, one is immigration for, uh, reform, which, you know, we've been talking about for a decade now. Is there any kind likelihood of any kind of action on immigration reform? Or is that pretty much a dead issue? If they, yeah. If they can't get anything into this budget reconciliation bill, which they could pass with Democratic votes, I just don't see much prospect for it. Um, what bipartisanship that used to exist on this issue, I mean, this was um, uh, doing something big on immigration an idea that originated with John McCain and Ted Kennedy in like 2005, largely dissipated because of Donald Trump. Um, he highlighted it. He ran on immigration again in 2020. And Republicans see it as a winner for them to continue to fight on agreement. So it, it seems highly unlikely that you would see immigration legislation next year in 2022. Uh, the Republicans are feeling uh, very positive about their uh, chances to take back control of both houses of Congress uh, in the midterm elections. Uh, are they justified in being so excited or are they uh, 
being a bit premature here. Definitely premature, but they're also, you know, looking at the current polls, you know, they're they're feeling justified. I mean, the, the current polls lean their way, but there's a long time yet between the election, more than a year to go. And so a lot could happen in that time. Typically, the party in power loses seats in the midterm elections, but not. yeah, yeah, uh, it, you're right, Sean. There is a long time to go. Uh, anyway, uh, I want to thank Sean for joining us on uh, Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, we hope to have Sean back because my guess is there's going to be a lot of activity and a lot to talk about uh, in the next year. I want to thank our guests, Sarah Jones of Politicus USA and Sean Zeller of Congressional Quarterly and Roll Call. Leslie Marshall will be back tomorrow. Be safe and be strong in these troubled times and make sure you listen and watch Deadline DC Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time or the podcast anytime on Twitter.com front slash Brad Bannon. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.